is Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. Welcome to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning here. Beautiful day. Enjoy your day, but don't do it before we listen to me today. Okay, going to start out with this week's weekly wrap for October 2nd. And the first week of the new month brought somewhat mixed action to the stock market. The S&P 500 was down, was up a half a percent. The NASDAQ composite was up 1.6%. They registered gains while the Dow Jones Industrial Average was down two-tenths of 1%. And the Russell 2000 Index was down 2.2%. We saw that the mega-cap stocks' performance offered support for the broader market this week as evidenced by a 2.5% gain in their mega-cap ETF versus a half a percent gain for the S&P. Meanwhile, the S&P 500 equal weight ETF actually uh, fell 1.2%. We saw 8 of the 11 S&P 500 sectors close this week in the red. Energy was down 5.4%, consumer staples down 3.1%, utilities down 2.9%. Those sectors saw the steepest declines, while the heavily weighted information technology was up 3.1%, communications services were up 2.9%. Those were the sectors that closed with the biggest gains. The energy sector fell alongside the West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil Futures, which declined 8.8%. Pay $83.04 a barrel. That weakness was partially attributed to concerns about weakening demand and slower growth environment influenced by higher interest rates, but oil prices had a big run up coming into this week. Treasury yields continued to move higher despite a growing sense the bond and stock market are oversold in the short term and due for a bounce. The 10-year note yield jumped another 20 basis points this week to 4.78%. The 2-year note yield rose 2 basis points to 5.06%. The move in yields partially reflected a recalibration of the rate hike expectations following Friday's stronger than expected September's employment report. Other notable data this week indicated that the September ISM services PMI which showed a modest deceleration in the pace of expansion versus August, and the September ISM manufacturing PMI, which showed a deceleration in pace of contraction compared to August. In addition, there was a cloud of political uncertainty hanging over the market after the House voted 216 to 210 in an unprecedented action to remove Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House. This is likely to complicate the negotiations to avoid another government shutdown after November 17th since business in the House is going to be stalled until the new speaker is elected. So looking at some of our daily summaries, we saw that on Monday it was the first day of trading in this new month, the second calendar day for the fourth quarter, and stocks followed a familiar pattern, though, and struggled alongside rising market rates. The final standing for the S&P 500 was a bit misleading as it belied broad market weaknesses below the surface. The S&P 500 equal weight fell 1.1. Nine of the 11 S&P 500 sectors saw a decline. The rate-sensitive utility sector was noticeably weak, down 4.7%. 
The energy sector was down 2.1, which was also another laggard, sliding with oil prices, which was partially a reaction to a stronger dollar and a Reuters report that OPEC's oil output rose in September. Relative strength in the mega cap space proved to be the difference for the mega cap weighted S&P 500 and the NASDAQ composite. The S&P 500 tested its 4,300 level at its high, but failed to break above it. That failure, along with a 10-year note yielding 4.7% at its high of the day, invited additional selling activity. So reviewing Monday's economic data, we see that the September ISM manufacturing PMI checked in at 49.0. That was up from 47.6 in August. The dividing line between expansion and contraction is 50, so the September reading denotes an ongoing contraction in the manufacturing sector, but at a slower pace than the prior month. September marked the 11th straight month that the PMI reading was below 50. And the key takeaway from this report is that the understanding that the pace of contraction in the manufacturing sector slowed in September, which is something that will be construed as an economy tracking more for a soft landing at this juncture than a hard landing. We saw total construction spending increase a half a percent month over month in August, after increasing an upwardly revised nine-tenths of one percent in July. Total private construction was up a half a percent for the month, while total constru- public construction increased six-tenths of 1%. On a year-over-year basis, total construction spending is up 7.4%. And the key takeaway from this report is that there is a balanced strength in August between private and public construction spending that gave a boost to total construction spending, which was up nicely year-over-year, leaving it well out of the hard landing zone. On Tuesday, stocks struggled, struggled amidst the rising rates again on Tuesday, as early bounces attempt to in both stock and bond markets quickly faded as yields shot higher in response to the release of the August jolts. This job openings data at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. The jolts report showed a big increase in job openings compared to the July, um, which reflected a continuation of a tight labor market. Yields turned higher and stocks turned lower immediately after the release. The jump in rates fueled concerns about valuations and increased competition for stocks posed by higher-yielding risk-free alternatives. Another point of concern for stock market participants is how quickly rates have moved up. Worries about the budget deficit and the attendant supply issues to fund the growing deficit in the face of softening demand have been touted as one of the main factors that is driving yields lower. Broad-based losses, which are paced, uh, were paced by growth stocks and mega caps. Also, the market was digesting news throughout the day regarding a motion to dismiss Kevin McCarthy. On Wednesday, the major indices had a choppy session, ultimately finishing near their best level of the day. The price action in an oversold treasury market provided an excuse for an oversold market to rebound. Mega cap performance was integral to the index levels. Apple was up as part logged a gain despite downward a downgrade by sector weight from overweight at key bank capital markets. The semiconductor and growth stocks acted as an additional support for the broader market. Still, many stocks came along for the bounce, evidenced by a six tenths of one percent gain in the S and P 500 equal weight. So reviewing Wednesday's economic data, we saw that the ADP employment change report indicated private payrolls grew about 89,000, 
That follows a revised increase of 180000 in August. We saw the weekly Mortgage Banker Association app- Applications Index fell 6%, with purchase applications declining, click, declining 6%, and refinance applications plunging 7%. The ISM Services PMI decreased to 53.6 in September from 54.5 in August. The dividing line between expansion and contraction again is 50, so September reading connotes an expansion in services sector activity, but at slightly slower pace than it was in August. September marked the ninth consecutive month of growth for the service sector. Key takeaway from this report is that the target sector of the largest sector of the U.S. economy remains in growth mode, paced by ongoing growth in new order activity and employment, and is still defying any hard landing news. We also saw that factory orders surged 1.2% month-over-month in August, followed an unrevised 2.1% decline in July. If you took out transportation, factory orders increased 1.4% month-over-month on the heels of a 9-tenths-of-1% increase in July. Shipments of manufactured goods jumped 1.3% month-over-month after increasing 7-tenths-of-1% in July. The key takeaway from this report is that factory orders down in July rebounded smartly in August, which is not indicated of an economy losing its growth momentum in a convincing way. And the weekly EIA crude oil inventories sold a draw of 2.22 million barrels following last week's draw of 2.17 million barrels. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live. We'll be right back. A change of season is a beautiful thing, but you've got to be comfortable to really enjoy it. Hi, Joe T. And for my friends at West Mechanical, Heating, Air Conditioning, and Electrical. Your furnace is back in action as temperatures have cooled down, and now is the time to have it checked by the pros at West Mechanical. An annual tune-up is essential to keep your equipment running as efficiently and as long as possible. But heating systems don't last forever, and it might be time to consider an upgrade. That could be a new ductless system from Mitsubishi Electric Heating and Air Conditioning. The beauty of an efficient ductless system is that it both heats and cools your home. The perfect solution for year-round comfort. And right now, you can save $1,000 on the installation of a new Mitsubishi electric system from West Mechanical. They're the pros I rely on, and they have a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So whether you're looking to keep your current system running its best, or want to see options on a new way to keep warm and cool, contact West Mechanical today at westmechanical.net. Are you looking for an auto shop that offers honest quality service? Hi, I'm Kirk, owner of Angler Automotive. At Angler Automotive, we strive to make sure that all of your automotive service needs are met. Angler Automotive provides the factory-recommended services that are required to maintain your vehicle's warranty. Angler Automotive, outstanding quality with honest, reliable service. Check us out online at anglerautomotive.com. We don't have the usual traffic jams that they have in the big city, but sometimes things happen to snarl everything up depend on KGMI to keep you cruising to your destination with KGMI traffic alerts. We'll tell you where the trouble spots are. And if you see problems on the road, give us a call at 360-676-5464 so we can spread the word. KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM and KGMI.com. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. 
and I had to start again with just my children and my wife. <laughs> Sitting here kind of dozing away. Welcome back to Wolf Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning. Actually, the reason for that, I took my wife to the emergency room this morning about 5 o'clock, so I guess I'm a little sleepier today than normal. Anyway, okay, Thursday, we saw the stock market experience some turbulence in the back of Wednesday's games. Unlike Wednesday, there was a disconnect between the stock market and Tuesday's their treasury yields, which is to say... The stocks languished despite a modest trip in yields. The major indices were able to close well off their lows of the day, albeit with modest declines thanks to some mega-cap stocks recovering their early losses. Buyers were seemingly hesitant in front of the September jobs report on Friday. The labor report followed Thursday's morning release of weekly initial jobless claims, which slowed the level of initial claims at 207,000, <clears throat> that is typically associated with a tight labor market and the economy running at a healthy clip. Treasuries had a volatile response to the data, but calmed down fairly quickly. Seven of the 11th sector, 500, S&P 500 sectors, registered a decline, but the consumer staples, down 2.1, were the worst performer by a wide margin due in part to the loss of Clorox following its disappointing guidance. Looking at Thursday's data, we saw that Weekly initial job claims, as I mentioned, were 207,000. <coughs> Weekly continuing claims, 1.664 million. The key takeaway from this report is the understanding that the low level of initial claims is associated not only with a tight labor market, but also an economy running at a good pace. We also saw August's trade balance at down 58. Point, it was at 58.3 billion. Prior was revised from 64 billion to 65. The key takeaway from this report is that the drop in imports in August versus the increase in exports that will factor favorably in as an input to the third quarter GDP. On Friday, the major indices closed out the session near highs. The S&P was up 1.2% above the 4,300 level. The NASDAQ, uh, Russell, Dow Jones Industrial Average climbed 1.61 and 0.9 respectively. Things look different at the open, however. Stocks moving lower after a sharp move higher. And Treasury yields, the two-year yield and the 10-year yield, hit 5.13 and 4.87, respectively, as participants eyed a much stronger-than-expected non-farm payroll gain of 336000 for September and ruminated over how that payroll strength might affect Fed policy. The Fed Fund's futures market now sees a 31.8% probability of another rate hike in November, up from 20.1% on Thursday, and a 42.6% probability of another hike, rate hike in December. That's up from 331 uh, also on Thursday. The Treasury yields quickly pulled back from their post-employment report highs, however, due to presumably to a sense that the bond market was oversold in the short term as participants found a bit of silver lining in the understanding that average hourly earnings growth moderated to 4.2% year-over-year from 43 in August. 
With Treasury yields coming in off their highs, stocks reacted favorably, staging their own reversal that was likely helped by some sort of short recovering activity. Mega cap stocks led the recovery evidenced by a 1.7% gain in the mega cap growth ETF that market breadth saw advancers move comfortably ahead of decliners as the rebound gained steam. Looking at Friday's economic data, we had that non-farm payroll, 336,000. Prior was revised from 200 to 227,187. We also saw September's non-farm private payrolls at 263,000. Uh, September's average hourly earnings were up two-tenths of 1%. Unemployment rate was still at 3.8%. And uh, the average work week was at 34.4 hours a week. The key takeaway from this report is it bodes well for the economy. That is good news, yet the news, good news is apt to translate into the market's mind into a stubborn Fed standing on guard of possibly rate hikes again, but certainly not cut them anytime soon. We saw consumer credit decreased by $15.6 billion in August after increasing an upwardly revised $11 billion in July. So the key takeaway from these reports is that the Non-revolving credit saw the biggest drop since December of 15, reflecting the tighter lending standards and reduced borrowing needs in face of higher interest rates. So now, as of the year-to-date, as of yesterday, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is now up 8 tenths of 1%. Your NASDAQ, however, is up 28.3%, the S&P 500 up 12.2%, and the Russell 2000 Index is actually down 9 tenths of 1%. For the year, looking at some of our high-frequency data that we follow every week, we saw that initial jobless claims for the week ending September 9th, as I mentioned a minute ago, were 207,000. Now, 2019, they were 224,000, but that was actually an increase of 1% last week. We saw continuing jobless claims at 1 million, and this is as of the 22nd of September, 1,664,000. Those actually... Uh, Declined about a tenth of 1%. Box office receipts took a big jump for the week ending October 5th, up over 47%. We saw rail car traffic is up 1.4%. Steel production as of October 2nd was down 7 tenths of 1%. Hotel occupancy for the week ending September 30th at 66.7%. That compares to 71.2% back in 2019, but that was a drop of 2.6% for the week. TSA checkpoint data as of October 5th, 2,393,638 passengers a day were passing through TSA checkpoints. That was a two-tenths of 1% increase. We saw the supply of motor gasoline drop 7%, and we saw the global commercial flights as of October 5th, 127,963 a day. Uh, that is That was a drop of eight-tenths of 1%. So we also saw a slight decline in the number of global flights. Uh, okay, let's take another look here. I got all kinds of things I want to cover, but some of them uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about right now, though, about gas and interest taking the most out of Americans' income since 2014. We saw that interest pay- payments have been eating up a growing share of Americans' income this year. I made aggressive Federal Reserve tightening. Now re- rising oil prices are also piling it on. Consumer spending on gasoline and interest combined accounted for 4.7% of U.S. disposable income last month. That's the most since August of 14, according to the Bureau of Economic Analysis figures on Friday. 
Interest payments alone were at 2.5% of disposable income. They were the highest since September of 2008. Increases in the shares of income going to either interest or gas have proceeded in recessions. The latest climb in both represents a dual headwind for the U.S. economy as the Fed tries to return inflation to its 2% target without tipping economic activity into a backward slide. Overall consumer spending rose just a tenth of 1% in August after adjusted for inflation, marking the weakest reading since March of uh, March. And then while that was a bit lower than the forecasters anticipated, it's still a marked drop-off from July's reading. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live here in KGMI. We'll be back shortly. Now is the time to upgrade your mattress and save big during DeWard & Bodie's 77th anniversary sale. DeWard & Bodie stocks the largest inventory of mattresses from Tempur-Pedic, Sturz & Foster, and Sealy in Whatcom County. Right now, get the mattress of your dreams with absolutely no money down and no interest for up to four years on select purchases. Score deep discounts on floor models and close-out mattress savings up to 50% off. Plus, pillows, sheets, boxes, and bases are all on sale. Take in-stock mattresses home with you today or have their delivery professionals deliver, set up, and even haul away and recycle your old mattress for you. DeWard and Bodie will price match any local competitor on in-stock mattresses, which means they guarantee the lowest price available. That's why Whatcom Skagit and Island County residents get their mattresses at DeWard and Bodie. For 77 years, they've had the best prices, best selection, and best service. Shop DeWard and Bodie's 77th anniversary savings at the Bellingham Mattress Showroom on Meridian next to Home Depot. Financing OAC offer qualifications When it comes to your vehicle, trust is everything. You need to know that the work being done on your vehicle is done right, done fast, and done for the right price. Bellingham Automotive has been serving and servicing vehicles 30 years. 30 years of proving they are in it for the long haul, earning that trust. You've got places to go. Bellingham Automotive is going to keep helping you get there. Call 360-676-5200 to schedule your appointment or visit BellinghamAutomotive.com. Northwest Energy Systems has been your local leader for heating, air conditioning, ductless, and conventional heat pumps and gas fireplaces since 1976. Stay comfortable all year long. Plan ahead now to look at credits needed for new construction projects or what rebates and incentives are available to upgrade your existing home. Call Dan or Chris at 360-734-HEAT or visit northwestenergy.com to learn more. Northwest Energy Systems, over 45 years serving the Pacific Northwest. You know those friends who say, stop by any time, and you're like, you don't really mean that. Well, unlike those friends, Dewey Griffin Subaru's Express Certified Subaru Tire and Service Center means it. They're open six days a week, including Saturdays. Stop by any time you need an oil change or any other minor maintenance, and they'll take care of you. No appointment necessary, and you'll get a free car wash with your service. Dewey Griffin Subaru. Community-minded and community-driven. 1800 Iowa Street in Bellingham. The latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. Tired of inefficient heating, poor indoor air quality, and rising energy bills? Contact West Mechanical today to explore going ductless with a system from Mitsubishi Electric Heating and Air Conditioning. Find them at westmechanical.net. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. CBS News Special Report. 
The sirens are sounding after Hamas militants launched thousands of rockets into Israel and stormed into communities along the southern border. CBS's Robert Berger in Jerusalem warns of escalation. We're going to see a major conflict because this is the most daring, uh, deadly attack Hamas has carried out inside Israel, bringing in uh, gunmen across the border taking hostages, killing civilians in their community. Israel says at least 40 people have been killed, hundreds wounded. CBS's Christina Ruffini has the official U.S. response. We reached out to the National Security Agency and they sent us back a statement saying they unequivocally condemn the unprovoked attacks by Hamas terrorists against Israeli civilians. There's never any justification for terrorism. While the Israeli prime minister states, we are at war, not an operation, not rounds, but at war. CBS News Special Report. I'm Linda Kenyon. And I'm proud to be an American. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donna here with you, as always. Okay, you know, I every quarter I kind of like to go back and take a look and see what were the top S&P 500 sectors in the last three months, as an example. And uh, we get questions a lot about, you know, what are our favorite sectors. And, you know, we like to take a look at this and, and um, sometimes the answer is more evident than it is at other times. It continues only to make, uh, make sense via hindsight. Since 2005, we've only had two sectors in the S&P 500 index that have been the top performer in back-to-back calendar years. Information technology was first, posting the highest return in 2019 of over 50%. In 2020, it was almost 44%. Energy was the second, posting the highest total returns in 2021, up 54% plus, and 22, over 65%, according to Bloomberg. The top performing sectors and their total returns in the third quarter of 23 were as follows. Energy up 12.22. Communication services up 3.07. Financials were down 1.13%. The total return of the S&P 500 index was down 3.2%. The other eight sectors generated total returns ranging from minus 2.65% in healthcare down to 9.25% down for utilities. By comparison, the top performing sectors and their total returns in the third quarter of 22 were consumer discretionary up 4.36, energy up 229, financials down 310. And the worst performing sectors for them were communication services down almost 13, real estate down 11, and materials down over 7. So advancements in artificial intelligence have proven to be a catalyst for the S&P 500 communication services and information technology indices these years. This year, uh, year to date, through September 29th, total returns for communication services and, and technology were 40.43% and 3.472% respectively. The S&P 500 has posted a year-to-date return of 13.06% through the end of September, so six of the 11 major sectors comprise the index uh, were positive on a total return basis, while five were negative during that same time frame. 
So what is our takeaway that we have from this? Well, while the top performing sectors are often vary from quarter to quarter, technology and energy stocks dominated the top spot over the last year. Developments in AI may have com- contributed to higher revenue expectations for technology companies. At 8.5%, the companies that comprise the S&P 500 sector se- uh, information technology index are forecast to set the highest revenue growth rates of any sector in the S&P 500 index in 24, according to, again, Bloomberg. Similarly, the recent recovery in the price of oil has likely boosted valuation for energy-related stocks. The price of a barrel of West Texas intermittent crude was at 90 bucks at the end of August. As I said earlier, it was down to about 82 bucks as of yesterday. So respecting representing an increase of 28.52% from what it was at the, the set when it sat at 70.64 at the start of the quarter. So will a different sector use the top top for the fourth quarter? We're going to have to look forward to that data and see what happens when we're out there in January. We'll take a look at it. And, you know, there's a like to explore some of the dynamics surrounding the United States dollar. You know, it's an era when inflation and large deficits, there are persistent rumors circulating that the dollar's at risk of losing its reserve currency status. We see a lot of that here, a lot of it all the time. These rumors are stoked by a desire of China and others to see this happen. We think these fears are overblown. The U.S. is not strong because the dollar is a reserve currency. The dollar is a reserve currency because the U.S. is strong, not just in economic might, but by its governments. The Constitution still stands, along with projections of pri- protections of private property rights and the rule of law, which have created honest, deep, and liquid financial markets. The U.S. remains one of the few places where people risk their lives daily to get into, not out of. To provide further insight, talk about this a little bit more, let's talk about the U.S. dollar. Contrary to prevailing assumptions, the dollar has been strengthening, not weakening against a broad basket of currencies over the past several years. In fact, the dollar has has risen more than 11 consecutive weeks, a remarkable feat that ranks as the second longest winning streak in the U.S. history of the U.S. dollar index. If it maintains its positive performance this week, it will equal the record for the longest weekly streak previously set in 2014. Uh, During periods of uh, distress and uncertainty, the dollar continues to be sought after as a trusted store of value and a symbol of safety on a global scale. Let's also take a share and take a look at what uh, our share of our uh, foreign exchange reserves are. And um, if you examine the most recent IMF data through the second quarter of 23, we are going to observe that the U.S. dollar comprised 58.9% of all official foreign exchange reserves. This is followed by a euro at 20%, yen at 5.4%, British pound at 4.9%, and the yuan at a modest 2.5%. It's worth noting that the U.S. dollar's share of foreign exchange reserves has declined over time. For instance, in 1999, 
it constitutes 71.2% of the total reserves. This decrease can be attributed in part to a foreign reserve managers diversifying their portfolios by including various smaller currencies. Nonetheless, it is evident that the dollar continues to maintain a significant lead as the world's primary revenue reserve currency. Okay, let's also look at it at the top countries and their net inflows and outflows of high net worth individuals. And this is, a, this is where the, the, the common belief that China's yuan could potentially replace the U.S. dollar as a new reserve currency or that BRICS, which is the nations of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South, uh, or South Africa, might create a, a, a common currency for trade that could challenge the dollar's dominance. However, you cannot replace a stronger currency with a weaker one. It just doesn't work. Looking at the countries who are seeing the largest inflation uh, and outflows of high net worth individuals, China leads the list with a net outflow of 10,800 people, followed by Russia and India. Interestingly, among the top five countries experiencing uh, the largest outflows of wealthy individuals, four are the BRICS nations. In contrast, the United States has seen the fifth largest increase, plus 1,500 in high net worth individuals. And the country that can't keep their most productive citizens gains confidence in other nations to adopt their currency. We do not, we think not. The current economic, economic, and geopolitical uh, reality suggests that the U.S. dollar's dominance remains robust. So uh, all these little ads about some of the things that you should buy on TV because the dollar's going to hell doesn't necessarily doesn't necessarily track what we're seeing when we sit down and take a look at the hard numbers. And I'm kind of looking at the hard numbers when I talk about these kind of things. Lots of turmoil this last week in Washington, D.C. A lot of market strategists have comments on what they're saying about the McCarthy ouster. The ouster of Republican Kevin McCarthy, as Speaker of the House, is going to add to the risk of U.S. sovereign credit rating downgrade. It also can create further uh, turmoil in the markets, according to strategists. McCarthy's exit from the leadership role is likely to set off a bout of political uncertainty in Washington on matters such as federal spending and brings into focus the potential for government shutdowns as legislators wrangle over budgetary allocations. The markets reacted. Treasuries extended losses in Asia trading Wednesday as McCarthy's uh, ouster added to their jitters about higher to longer interest rates and the return of a traditional risk premium for bonds. U.S. bond yields have shot higher this week, and strategists say that Congress's power to struggle may st- trigger renewed angst in fixed income. We're also seeing that bond yields and volatility are rising. There is a mix of Potential downgrade of Moody's investment services should be changed. Uh, that had lead to a government shutdown and fuel more uncertainty about the U.S. spending plans. Uh, Moody's is the only remaining major agency to give the nation a top rating. Said late last month that his confidence in the U.S. is wavering because of the concerns about governance. We also saw the immediate market impact of McCarthy's ouster is relatively limited to the government funding 
because the government's funded till November 17th. And the near-term concern is that the House's paralysis will further complicate the already complicated calculus surrounding the oncoming fight ahead. We also see that the next speaker is likely to be under even more pressure than McCarthy on funding issues. So we're going to see some interesting times and challenges as we move ahead, move out there into what's going to happen in Washington, D.C., what's going to happen in Israel, what's going to happen, what's going to happen, keeping all these questions up in the air. This is what makes this business fun sometimes is there's there's no absolute given where we can just kind of say, well, this is the way it is and this is the way it's going to be. It's a business that has constant change that makes it really interesting and kind of uh, makes it makes it fun to have to keep up with. But anyway, Dick Donahue with you with Wolf Wake Up Live. We'll be back shortly. How does year-round comfort sound? Whether you're too hot or too cold, eliminate comfort challenges with a new Daikin heat pump or AC. Hi, I'm Brad Barron, CEO at Barron Heating, AC, Electrical, and Plumbing. And I'm thrilled to introduce our latest offer. Same as cash, pay no interest, and no payments for 12 months. As we say goodbye to summer, don't say goodbye to adding cooling just yet. Now is the perfect time to upgrade your home comfort system. And the best part is you can lock in 2023 prices and pay nothing until next year. But here's the real kicker. Same as cash applies to heating, cooling, as well as solar, generators, tankless water heaters, and more. And with Barron's special financing, enjoy zero interest and no payments for a full year. At Barron, we understand the value of your time and budget. That's why we offer short wait times and fast track installation. Call Barron today for a free estimate. So long summer, hello savings. Barron, your full service HVAC electrical and plumbing contractor. Our mission, improving lives. Hello, folks. Are you ready to get your estate planning affairs in order, but you don't know where to start? Would you like to hear about the difference between wills and trusts? Do you want to learn how to avoid probate? Do you have questions about Social Security and Medicare? Is it important to you to make life as easy as possible on your spouse and loved ones if something should happen to you? This is Phil George. I'm an elder law and estate planning attorney here in Bellingham. Join me right here on KGMI every Saturday at 1 p.m. for the Aging Hour. And let me show you how to set your family up for success in your retirement. At Puget Sound Energy, we're proudly aspiring to reduce our own emissions to net zero and to go beyond by helping others reduce carbon across Washington. Together, we're investing in local renewables, strengthening the electric grid, helping customers switch to electric vehicles, innovating with low-carbon resources, supporting our communities, and saving energy along the way. Together, we're creating a clean energy future. Because there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning. As always, if you got questions for me, you can always give me a call. 360-733-1200. Well, we see bank rate comes out with all kinds of different studies from now and then. We see another one that they came out this week with the 10 most affordable states for retirees. And they analyzed data from all 50 states to determine the best and the worst states for retirees. The research found that Iowa is the best state overall for retirement, followed by Delaware, West Virginia, Missouri, and Mississippi. A little surprising when you hear that. There's no Tennessee on there. There's no Florida on there. There's no Arizona on there. 
And Bankrate analyzed multiple factors relevant to retirees, including health care, well-being, crime, weather. One of the most important data points of the study, however, was affordability. And to determine the best and worst states to retire, they analyzed multiple data points and assigned a weight to each category. Under affordability, they signed a 40% weight in their ratings to affordability. Overall overall well-being was 25% of their rating. Quality and cost of health care was 20% of their rating. Weather was at 10%. Crime was at 5%. They used public and private databases related to the life of a retiree. Affordability includes cost of living, taxes, and insurance costs. Wellness includes the number of people over 65 in an area, recreational and cultural opportunities, diversity, and other well-being factors. Healthcare looks at costs, availability of state healthcare system performance. Weather includes average temperatures, but also factors in things such as tornadoes, hurricanes, and earthquakes. And finally, the crime scores are based on rates of property crimes, and violent crimes per 100,000 inhabitants in each state, according to the FBI. So looking at those 10 most affordable states, the overall rank was, was, West Virginia's overall rank was number three. It's kind of interesting because looking at their their, their quality of uh, cost of health care actually ranked down in the 50 ranking when they added everything up, relatively low, in fact, very low. And... um, but the 10 most vulnerable states, West Virginia, number two was Mississippi. Its health care ranking was also fairly low at 49. And then Iowa was number one or number three in their overall, but number one overall. All their ratings were pretty low. Um, Alabama overall was fourth on their list, but had a crime rate ranking of 44, relatively high. Missouri was number five. Numbers were all fairly median in, in, in Missouri. Oklahoma was number six. And you look at the, the, the highest number overall there. Again, health care was not that well uh, high, and their overall rank, well-being rank was fairly low. Uh, Indiana uh, overall rank was uh, number seven. Uh, well-being did not rate very good. Uh, Kansas uh, was number eight. Fairly mid, middle and modest rankings all the way from top to bottom. Wyoming was number nine. Uh, rather interesting, also fairly steady. Weather was uh, a little bit low. Uh, their health care was at 38. Uh, I've seen similar rankings to this in the past. One thing that makes Wyoming, uh, especially South Wyoming, attractive is that it's as close as it is to Colorado. Colorado has one of the highest ranking uh, health care and quality cost rankings in the country. And number 10 on that list was Arkansas. Um, Ratings were all fairly moderate, although their crime rank was really, really, really low. So uh, kind of a little divergence there from one end to the other. And, you know, I spend a lot of time talking about IRAs and investing in IRAs and Roth rollovers and all that other stuff. I guess that comes from the 20 years that I've been part of the – Master Elite IRA Study Group with Ed Slot. Uh, you, you look at a look it up irahelp.com on your computer. That's irahelp.com. See a lot of really good information there. But a couple of alerts. I think I talked about this a couple of months ago. 
but you need to be really careful in going out and investing your uh, IRA money as far as some of these things that are being thrown out there. And this one, in this case, is non-fungible tokens. The IRS basically has strict specifications for investing IRA funds. And, so, and that non-fungible tokens include such artworks as art, gems, antiques. They are considered to be prohibited investments that could result in you winding up paying taxes and penalties. So if you're thinking of buying non-fungible tokens, or what we call NFTs, you may want to reconsider. IRS Notice 2327, the Internal Revenue Service, or IRS, said that the NTFs associated with collectibles are prohibited IRA investments. This could expose you to significant taxes and penalties. IRAs are subject to strict prohibition transaction rules to ensure that an IRA owner or the related party does not engage in self-dealing. But only a few IRA investments are prohibited. Collectibles, life insurance, and S-corporation stock. So what is a collectible? Well, under the current code, it includes any work of art, any rug or antique, any metal or gem, any stamp or coin, except for there's some gold and silver coins minted by the Treasury Department, and there's a certain bullion that is, is eligible. You cannot buy alcoholic beverages. You'll see a lot of people wanting to buy aged scotch or something like that. You can buy it, but you can't buy it with your IRA money. You also can't uh, have any other tangible personal property, which is specified by the IRS. So notice 2327 says that the non-fungible token in itself is a collectible if it's associated with any of these prohibited collectibles. Um, This would occur if the NFT has either gives the NFT holder a right or to a prohibited collectible or certifies ownership of a prohibited collectible. If an NFT is considered a collectible, then an IRA investment in the NFT is prohibited and would result in a deemed distribution to you in the year of your investment. It's called a deemed distribution because you don't have to withdraw the collectible from the IRA when the distribution on the investment occurs, but the amount of distribution is the original cost of that collectible. So you buy it, you are deemed to have taken money out of that IRA and bought a non-qualified investment. So if you're investing in a traditional IRA in a collectible, all or part of the deemed distribution may be taxable. And if you're under age 59 and a half, your whole school could be subject to the 10% early withdrawal penalty. By contrast, if you're investing a Roth IRA in a collectible, the deemed distribution would not be taxable if the distribution is qualified. If the distribution is not qualified, the Roth IRA ordering rule applies and all or a part of the distribution could be taxed to you. So you need to think carefully before making any IRA investments in a non-fungible token that is associated with a prohibited collectible. But what if you already have this type of investment in your IRA? Well, an IRA investment in NFTs made before 2020 would probably be fine since the issue, IRS issues should be, uh, would be barred by the usual three-year statute of limitations. However, it's not clear whether the IRS will retroactively go after investments made after 2019, but before March 21st of 23, that's the date the notice of 2327 was issued. If you're in that boat, by all means, you need to talk to your tax advisors to make sure that you don't need to get that out of there. And we're always getting questions about Social Security distributions and stuff, and I had a caller want to know if they could collect Social Security under their, her husband's 
work record and then collect their own. And um, basically, they said, I'm turning 65 at year end, want to know if I collect Social Security under my husband's work record once I reach full retirement age of 66 to 8. That would be in August of 25. And then collect uh, on my own Social Security once I reach 70 of age. Her husband retired a few years ago and was now 70 years old. Well, the answer to that is, if, if she files for a benefit as a spouse, she's going to have deemed to file for her own retirement benefit at the time at that time as well. There is no option for a restricted application anymore, what we call used to call spousal benefits only, which allowed your own retirement benefit to keep growing. This strategy was eliminated by the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2015 for anybody born after January 1st of 1954. So it doesn't appear that this caller, uh, but it's worth noting that there's a critical distinction between survivor benefits rather than spousal benefits. The ability to take a restricted application from a survivor benefit, i.e. take a survivor benefit and allow your own benefit to keep growing, does still exist. They bring this up because it's a constant source of confusion in both directions. That is, people often read about the restricted application for spousal benefits being eliminated, therefore think incorrectly that such is not available to survivor benefits, or they need to think about the ability to make a restricted application for survivor benefits and think incorrectly. For anybody born uh, January 2nd, 1954 or later, there is, there's, there is still an availability for spousal benefits. So uh, a little confusion when you talk about collecting your own benefits, your husband's benefits, or basically usually what you're doing is you're collecting some of each and then what happens after they die. And so you need to understand that the uh, amount of benefits that are there after death, you still could turn from your benefit to your spouse's benefit if, in fact, your their benefit is higher. So just uh, something we get a lot of questions about that type of thing. We like to spend a little bit of time talking about it every now and then. So... Anyway, this has been Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning here on KGMI. As always, we do thank you for being with us. Don't forget our show tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. We'll talk about all the economic data that came out this week. We do thank you for listening. If you've got questions for me, give me a call, 360-733-1200. Thanks, and have a great week.